Hey, this is Brandon Emma Richardson, and we are the pastors here at Slate Church based in Waterloo, Ontario, and this is our Sunday podcast. We really hope this message inspires you to lean into all that God has for you. If you would like to get connected with us, follow us on social media or go to slatechurch.com. And hey, it helps us a lot if you would rate, review, subscribe, and share this podcast. Join us for today's message. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here. I'm going to take you back with me to start off this morning, and I want you to imagine something with me. I have a, an image that I'm going to show you on the screen to help set the scene, and I'm going to want, take you back to a moment in my childhood when I was maybe seven or eight years old, and this was uh, an encounter with uh, basically my best friend. His name was Peter Kennard. He lived across the street from me. Did anyone, you have that childhood best friend? They've just always been your best friend, and uh, at one point in time, I was uh, hanging out outside my house. He lived just across the street. And there was another kid who lived down the street. Now, his parents were divorced, so he was only around like every second week. But whenever he was home, he would come down, knock on the door. Hey, do you want to play? Yes, of course. And so on this particular day, he uh, comes up to my house and he's like, hey, do you want to play? And he's like, yeah, let's go get our, our friend Peter and we'll play as well. And so we go over and, uh, and while we were waiting for Peter to get ready, his mom said, oh, he, needs, he just needs a couple of minutes to get ready. Uh, my friend Matt said to me, he said, I have an idea. Let's play a trick on Peter. And I'm like, awesome. And so he tells me his idea of this trick he wants to play. Now, why I went along with this, you know, we'll see. But I went along with it. So when Peter comes out, he walks down the step. And do we have the picture of the house up there? It'd be great. All right, so this is, the, this is my friend Peter's house. And they've torn the garage out since. But right at the end of the driveway there, I want you to picture like a seven or eight-year-old me and a seven or eight-year-old Matt, and we're standing there. And then my friend walks down the steps, and he walks down the driveway. And when he gets to the end of the driveway, we put Matt's plan into action. Each of us standing on either side of him grabs Peter's forearm and bites it as hard as we can. And Peter howls in pain, and both of us are like, oh my gosh, what have we done? And Matt runs down the street to his house, and I run across the street into my house. And like there, was, there were punishments and there were apologies and all of that kind of thing. But like to this day, that is like the low watermark of my experience of friendship. Like I was, that was the moment when I was the worst friend to someone in my life. Now let's fast forward about 20 years and I'm an adult version of myself and I'm in a suit and I'm pacing around my living room because I'm about to go and officiate my niece's wedding. And I get a phone call. And the phone call is from a friend of mine, a friend and mentor. And actually, he had just spoken at our student church where I was pastoring the, week, the weekend before. And he called me, and I'm like, why is he calling right away? And uh, he says, Brandon, I need to tell you something um, before it becomes public. And he lets me know that for the last number of years, he'd been having an affair on his wife. And that it had just been discovered, and it was going to be announced the next morning. And he said, I wanted to let you know. I wanted to honor our friendship in this. And I walked with him that, like that over the next few months as we would talk on the phone and we would process this. And, and maybe it was three months or maybe it was six months later, he said to me, he said, Brandon, I want you to know, he said, almost every single Christian or pastor friend of mine has dropped me. But he said, you and maybe two other people, you've really been faithful friends to this. And so for me, that is probably the high watermark of being a friend in my life. I have it in me to be the best of friends and the worst of friends. And so do you. You have it in you to be the worst friend to someone. And you have it in you to be the best friend to someone. So we're doing this series, as Emma mentioned. And last week, Jared, when he was teaching, he talked about the fact that the more that we understand love, 
the better job we're going to be able to do reflecting love. And so we're unpacking these four Greek words that don't really mean a whole lot to us. Storge, this family love. Philia, this friendship love. Eros, this romantic love. And agape, the self-sacrificial love. And they come from C.S. Lewis. The words themselves predate him, of course, but, but he put them together in this book called The Four Loves. C.S. Lewis was a, a British professor and author. He taught at Oxford and Cambridge. He's very well known in pop culture for the Chronicles of Narnia series. And as he was writing about the friendship version of love, which I'm continuing from Jared's message last Sunday, he said to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, he wrote, ignores it. Now, he wrote that 60 years ago, but I think the trend continues. The modern world ignores friendship love. I mean, we're all about romantic love. We know, that, we know everything that Harry and Meghan are up to. We know everything that Ben and J-Lo are up to. Heck, last weekend, my daughter and her friend were at the market. They got separated for a few minutes. Her friend ran in to Justin and Haley at the market. And I have, like, photo evidence of this to show you, just in case you doubt it. There it is. Now, like, now, can we just all admit together that that was the worst celebrity photo you've ever seen in your life? Like 90% pavement, and then their backs and some random woman carrying like a recycling bin. Like, seriously, that's as good as you could get? Anyways, whatever. So, yeah, we're, so we're, we're fascinated by this romantic kind of vision of love. But when was the last time you read a headline about people being really good friends? We don't. C.S. Lewis said, if you value it, because few experience it. And I might expand that a little bit and say few experience it because it's really difficult. It's really difficult to be and to have good friends. And yet, we run into the words of Jesus in John 15. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. So what does it look like for us to love one another with a philia or a friendship love? All right, thought experiment with me here this morning. You're in a rubber life raft with a friend. You're approaching an island. The raft is leaking. You're within sight of land. In the raft is a set of signal flares, a week supply of canned food, and a five-gallon container of water. You must throw one of these overboard if you're going to make it to the island. Which one do you choose? Now, quick show of hands. Who threw the friend overboard? All right, a couple of you. A couple of you know what it's like to have a bad friend. And so I want to introduce you to another Peter, not from my childhood, but a friend of Jesus. They were close friends, and he provides us an example of just how difficult it can be to be a consistently good friend. Now, Peter's friendship with Jesus began with a miraculous catch of fish. He was a fisherman, uh, and then Peter and his fisherman colleagues, they all left everything to follow Jesus. So this friendship got off on an incredible start. And what I want to do is walk through, and just I'm going to point out some facts about friendships just in general that are demonstrated in Jesus' friendship with Peter. I think you're going to recognize these as we go through. So the first one is that friends will understand you. Friends will understand you. And at the beginning, um, as, Jesus is, as Jesus and Peter, they're getting to know each other, Jesus asks this question of some of this group of followers. He says, okay, so who do people say that I am? Like, what is, what's the word on the street? What are the rumors going around? And people start throwing things out. And then he asks this question. He says, who do you say I am? 
And Peter makes this incredible statement. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter becomes the first person to really see Jesus for who he was. And Jesus says, you're right. So friends will understand you. They will know who you are. But friends will also misunderstand you. And it was at that same day. So Peter has just acknowledged who Jesus is. And then Jesus says, okay, now that you know who I am, I want to let you in on a little something. The time's going to come where the religious leaders, they're going to encircle me, they're going to arrest me, they're going to try me, and they're going to execute me. But it's okay because I'm going to rise again on the third day. And Peter steps in and he's like, never, never will this happen. I won't allow it. And Peter responds, get behind me, Satan. You're standing in my way. Now, just a little aside as we're talking about friendship, please do not follow Jesus in this one example. Do not call your friends Satan if they misunderstand you. Jesus said it. No, it doesn't work that way. So friends will misunderstand you, but friends will fight for you. When that time came when Jesus was arrested, Peter stood up, the guard, the captain's guard, they all came around, they came to arrest Jesus, they had weapons, and Peter comes forward, he's got a sword, he pulls it out, and he actually lobs He's like, see Jesus, like I told you, I told you I'd do it, I knew I'd be here for you, I'll fight for you. As you might imagine, Jesus wasn't very impressed by that. But still, there's something about friends who will fight for you. But friends will also turn their back on you. And that same night, same night, Peter was standing around a fire and a young girl came up to him and recognized something in his accent and said, wait a second, aren't you one of this man's disciples too? And he replied, I am not. Friends will turn their back on you. Friends will disappoint you. You see, Jesus called Peter away from this life of fishing to become a fisher of men, to follow his, uh, to be one of his followers, to build his church, build his kingdom on earth. But then after Jesus had been raised from the dead and, and left, Peter gathers the same group of people around. He says, well, I guess it's back to fishing, boys. And out they go. Think of that. Three plus years of Jesus' life building this friendship. Peter just walks away from it. Friends will disappoint you. Now, I'm just going to pause for a second. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, is this supposed to be encouraging? Like, you're telling me that I'm supposed to be a good friend to people, and you're talking about all the terrible things about being a friend. Like, what's the point here? Uh, I was on an airplane a few weeks ago, and when I sat down in my seat, I saw this image. And it would be familiar if you've ever been on a flight before. Uh, this was right in front of me. I just took my camera out and took a picture. A picture of a plane crashing into the side of a mountain. I was flying out of Calgary, which, as you may know, if you know anything about geography, is surrounded by mountains. And I'm looking at this picture going, seriously? Like, right now? You need to show me a picture of a plane flying into a mountain? Like, why are we talking about all the ways that friendships are, like, people will misunderstand you. They'll, you know, they'll turn their back on you. They'll, they'll miss it. Like, why are we talking about this? Because it's better to know ahead of time. You want to know what to do ahead of time if the plane's going down. You want to know ahead of time what to expect in friendships. See, one of the biggest pitfalls en route to this most fully human of all loves is how easy it is to give up on someone or to give up on the idea of friendship as a whole. Now, Jesus didn't have a whole lot to say about friendship. He really didn't. But he showed us what it means to have a friendship love for someone. Because in all of these situations and more, Jesus stood by Peter and he kept calling him onward. You see, in that last scene that I painted where Peter's out there again fishing, going back to the life that he'd been called away from, Jesus invites him in from the shore and he sits down around a fire and he says, Peter, do you love me? And when Peter says, yeah, 
Like despite the misunderstanding, despite the disappointment, despite the turning my back, yeah, I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. He calls him right back to the mission that he'd given him to begin with. This is my command, Jesus said. Love one another the way I loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. Now, I don't want to minimize the very real trials and tribulations of friendship, but it's important that we keep the long game in mind if we want to love people the way that Jesus loved his friends. After all, in the words of Eugene Peterson, perfect is not a word we use to describe friendship. Now, let's imagine that despite everything I've just said, you're willing to give this whole philia friendship love thing a try. How does it work? Well, I want to tell you a story of an experience that I had a month ago. Um, so this friend that I mentioned earlier, the one who called me, whose life kind of crumbled and fell apart, we've stayed in touch over the years. And about seven years after years of kind of trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life, he started, uh, he started something that he calls Transformations Retreats. And for years, he's been trying to explain to me what he does, and he keeps saying the same thing. Brandon, you just have to come out. You just got to come and experience it for yourself. And so finally, a month ago, I did. I went out. I flew out to Calgary. We drove nine hours north through the Rocky Mountains outside of Prince George, BC, to this retreat center. And I had an experience, a profound experience of friendship love. He didn't tell me anything about it. He wanted me to stay in the dark. He wanted me to experience it live uh, so I could get the full impact. And so everything that happened just kind of came, and it was live, and I had no preparation. And so we show up in this place. I was like a coach, and I'll explain a little bit more about that later. But there were 27 participants. He was working with uh, First Nations communities in northern BC. Some people had driven from like eight hours even further north to come down for this retreat. And it was a personal development retreat. These were people whose lives were absolutely broken and unmanageable and heading to a disastrous end. And so their local band council would fund, give them the funds to come down and attend this, participate in this retreat. A number of the people who were there over the course of the week said that they've attended um, treatment center and rehab centers, and this was by far the most profound, life-changing experience they'd had. But at the beginning, I'm standing in this room, and, and 27 participants come in. And these are all First Nations people, and, and I don't know anything about any of their stories, any of their background. And my friend stands up at the front, and he begins to talk. He begins to talk about, you know, kind of the purpose. This is what we're going to do this week. And he says, I want someone to stand up and tell their story. And I took a picture of, he had this flip chart and some questions. So come up and tell us your name. Tell us a little about your family. Why are you here? What do you want to get out of this week? And it's like crickets. No one knows each other. These are all total strangers to one another. But then finally one person stands up. And this man takes the microphone. And he begins to tell a story. And the details of his story are his own. They're not mine to tell. But it was heartbreaking. And I was sitting there going, is everyone going to have a story like this? Something happened. When that first participant stood up and told his story, it wasn't just telling the details of what had happened in his life. It wasn't just talking about the trauma he's experienced. It wasn't just talking about the level of brokenness and addiction that his life was steeped in. It was something so much more than that. A new realm of possibility was open for every last person in that room. You see, prior to that moment, there was a chance that every last person sitting around that semicircle would have just stayed sitting, that they would have kept their story to themselves, that they would have kept the walls up, kept the barriers up. But after he spoke, that just was not a possibility anymore. Because authenticity breeds authenticity. And what happened was he was willing to be vulnerable. The next person stood up. 
and the courage it took to be the first one to become vulnerable, truly vulnerable, well, it lowered the level of courage that it required the next person to be vulnerable, and then the next person, and so on. And I don't want to minimize the level of courage that it took these people to stand up. One of these men stood up, maybe 60 years old, and he said, for the first time, I want to acknowledge that when I was a child, I was sexually abused by a priest in a residential school for 12 years. Like, that takes courage. But it was possible because someone else decided, I'm going to be the first one to open my life up to this group of strangers. It was powerful. Richard Rohr writes that moments of vulnerability are the very space where God can most easily break in with fresh experience. He goes on to say, in fact, I doubt if God can break through in any other way. Now, if God can't break through if we don't make ourselves vulnerable, because he respects our will, our freedom, well, what are the chances of a friend breaking through to that barrier? I find myself, I found myself opening up more to these new friends that I had just met than I had to most people in my life. That's not to disparage, like, the friends and family in my life. There are people that I'm very open and very vulnerable with, but I was able to do it with this group of strangers because they started this ball rolling. They opened their life, and I was able to open and share things with them that I just don't share with anybody. It's like there's this room in our lives. It's like if our, if our life is a house, we let people into this room, into that room, the rooms we've cleaned before we let them in, you know. And then there's this other room, and it's, it's locked, and it's maybe at the end of the hallway, and we just, no, not that room. We just ignore it. We leave it closed. But what happens if we open that up to someone? Let me ask you, do you ever feel like your friendships are stuck? Like there's a barrier to growth. Um, a number of years ago, let's say a decade ago, uh, a friend of my mother's was moving and she, she had this beautiful jade tree. Now, I don't have a picture of the actual tree, but I have a picture of one that looked very similar to it. And uh, on the left here. So it, it was this massive, massive tree. And she was like, I don't know where, where to put this. And so we took it and, and we put it in the lobby of our office, which is similar to Slate's office right now in industrial parks. So it was just a big, beautiful plant in like a really kind of crappy building. Um, but, but there it was. But the thing that happened is over the next few years, like, it began to, to struggle. And, and the, the branches were like, they were kind of limp and, and they weren't thriving. It wasn't quite bursting like this one. And, and we propped it up with sticks and rope and twine and we tried and we were watered it. And then we thought, well, maybe we're watering it too much. So we watered it less and did everything. We moved it from this place. Maybe it's too hot. Maybe it's too cold. Maybe it needs more sun. Maybe not enough sun. And I'm trying to keep this thing alive. And then COVID hit and I was barely around the office and it, I came back one day and it was just like dead. Like there's nothing. It was just like a little withered brown root. And I was like, dang it. But the, the pot it was in was beautiful, so I brought it home, and I put it on our deck. And then a couple of weeks ago, my wife was like, oh, why don't we plant some flowers in there? I was like, good idea. So I got some potting soil, and I started filling up this potting soil. And as I was digging it around, the little spade I was using, it hit something hard. And what it hit was this plastic tub under the ground. And I realized that, like, 10 years ago, someone transplanted a small jade plant into this big, beautiful pot, and they kept the, brown, the plastic tub. And so this plant grew to be this big with its roots not able to go beyond the boundaries of that plastic tub. And I was like, I am good at keeping trees alive. If there wasn't a stupid plastic tub buried under the dirt. 
Like, there's no way a tree can survive in that circumstance. There's no way that our friendships are going to survive and thrive if we keep these barriers and these boundaries and we don't let people in and we don't let the roots go deep. In John 15, verse 15, Jesus said, I am no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand their master, what their master is thinking and planning. No, I'm named you friends because I've let you in on everything. I've heard from my father. According to Jesus, genuine friendship involves letting people in, being authentic. Christian author, Pastor Stanley Harawas says, whatever it means to be a Christian, it at least involves the discovery of friends you did not know you had. This is about discovering friends you didn't know you had. And this happened to me. So I mentioned earlier this, that I was there at this retreat as a coach. And uh, I, I mean, the other people had all gone through this program before. I had not. And so at the beginning, they gave everyone like two minutes. So I stand up and I'm like, hi, this is my name. This is who I am. I was very, felt very white in this space. And I'm just like, it's kind of awkward. But I told a little bit of what I was hoping from this week. And then they asked the coaches to stand up on a chair. And so I had to stand up on a chair and they said, all right, all these participants in the middle, choose a coach. Pick someone that you want. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, who's going to want me? Like, I'm the only one who doesn't belong in this room right now. So I stand up on this chair, and it's like, all right, pick whoever you want. And I'm like, this is awful. This is like one of the more humiliating experiences in my life. And at the end, I've got this group of four indigenous women who chose me to be their coach for some unbeknownst reason. I mean, this is the first question I asked them. I'm like, why me? Like, what's, what's going on here? It's interesting because... At the end of it, even if it's only someone that you have just met, and even if you don't feel like you have anything in common, that's how I was feeling in that moment. Authenticity breeds community. And as we went around that circle and began to tell a little more of our stories, and they began to share their stories, and as we opened up to one another, it formed this bond. And each of these Indigenous women gave me something significant over the course of those four days that I will always carry with me. And I believe that to some degree I did the same for them. Philia quality friendship is about mutuality. It's a giving and receiving among equals. What can I give and what can I receive? I mean, doesn't that sound like something that you want more of in your life? Mutually beneficial relationships? I recently read a book by an author named Arthur C. Brooks. He is a professor at Harvard and he studies happiness. And at one point he writes that research shows that one of the great markers for happiness among people at midlife and beyond is people who can rattle off the names of a few authentic, close friends. Now, I don't know. I mean, if you're, like, in your early 20s or whatever, you may be like, oh, my gosh, I got friends coming out the wazoo. I can't even keep up with all my friends I've got. Well, what the research shows is that that all changes over the next 20 years of your life. Maybe it's kids, maybe it's jobs, maybe it's whatever happens in life. And a lot of people lose those close friendships. And then people find themselves in midlife. Me. Emma said I've been doing this for decades, right? And you start wondering, like, do I have, like, authentic friends? And the people who experience happiness throughout that whole second step, half of their life are the people who make a commitment to having those deep, authentic friendships. And this is important to start to understand regardless of your age, because you might be in my stage of life and thinking, well, what the heck am I supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to get working on it now, because you've still got half your life to live. And if you're in an earlier stage of life, it's like, Make the investments on getting those real deep roots in your friendship so they will last through the decades to come. 
The only regret that people in this research have is that they didn't start sooner. And so it's been a joke around our dinner table. It's been like, um, Dad, you have more friends than any of us. Like, what's going on? You know, because over the last couple of years, as I've been walking through some deep waters in my own life, I've reached out to people in my life, and I've said that I need more. Like, I need more for you. And I've developed some significant, meaningful relationships. I'm letting the roots go deeper. There are no locks on the doors. And it's bringing results in my own life, and I believe in the lives of the people that I'm walking with as well. Arthur Brooks writes that friendship is a skill that requires practice, time, and commitment. So what if you reached out to someone in your life? Whether you've known them for decades or days, maybe you just met them in a group last week. What if you reached out to them and took the risk of being authentic? What might happen? Now think, who might that person be? And ask yourself, what is holding you back? At the end of this retreat, people were invited to stand up and kind of say, what has happened in your life over the last few days? And one of the women who was in my small group, she stood up and she kind of talked about what was going on in her life. And, and she said something to the effect of like, like I've never heard people use these kind of words to talk about me or describe me before. And then she said something that really hit me hard. She said, I've never experienced this kind of love before. And then she paused for a second. She said, it's friendship love the best kind of love. And someone whose life has just been broken by all kinds of promises of this kind of love and that kind of love understood that she had received a friendship love, the authenticity and the community of that time together. Now, while Jesus put up with a lot of, in his friendship with Peter, the things that I've mentioned and a lot of the things that I didn't mention, even that was only a shadow of how far he was willing to go to demonstrate his love. Remember his words, I read them earlier, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. So we can lay down our lives for our friends by putting up with their misunderstandings and they're turning their back on us and their disappointments. But Jesus went even further than that and he literally laid down his life as he had told his followers he would. On the cross, Jesus went far beyond the love of a friend that he showed to Peter and he demonstrated the unconditional agape love of God for each and every one of us reach in every one of you. Catherine Lacuna, a Catholic author, writes that the very nature of God is to seek out the deepest possible communion and friendship with every last creature on this earth. Isn't that beautiful? God's nature is seeking out a friendship with each one of us. That includes you and includes me and it includes everyone in between. So I want to close with these words of Jesus and then pray. He says, you didn't choose me, remember. I chose you. Isn't that beautiful? I chose you and put you in the world to bear fruit. At least part of what that fruit is, is being the kind of friend that Jesus was. That's part of what it means for us to bear fruit in this, in this world. But remember, he says, root command. Love one another. Let's pray. God, in this space, we recognize your presence and we recognize your goodness. We recognize your nature, that you are after every single one of us. You want to befriend us. 
You want to love us. You want us to understand the depths of that love which was expressed for us on the cross. That you put yourself in the way of danger. That you made yourself available to deal with all of the, the heaviness and the sin and the destruction of our world. You put yourself in that place, God, so that we wouldn't have to. That is the love of a friend. And so God, this morning in this place, we give thanks for that. And if we're just wrestling with this for the first time, God, I wanna pray for people who are sitting in this space and they're saying, I have never heard about a love like this before. I didn't understand. I thought God was out there judging me. I thought God was waiting to smite me. You know, I thought God is just waiting to punish me. No, God is there to love you. And God, for those people who are sitting in this space this morning and are just hearing about this, I pray that they would know and experience that love right now in this moment, maybe for the first time. God, you are good, you are love, and you call us to love with the same kind of love. Empower us by your spirit to do this, to live it out in Jesus' name. to go back into worship and many of you know we uh, as we tell our story as a church Slate Church started out of a student church and that student church that Em and I were leading at that time was a church called the Embassy which was started 20 years prior by Brandon and Melissa Mallow and so if you have um, anything to thank us for as a church, Slate Church, or Slate Church has contributed to your life in any way. We have a lot of gratitude that we owe to Brandon and Melissa Mallow. And so um, thank you for a message, but thank you for being faithful. And it's, uh, it's pretty special to have Brandon here this morning. And so Brandon, we just, wherever you are, thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to our Sunday podcast. To hear more messages like these, be sure to share and subscribe. We're thankful for all that God is doing in our church right now. We would love to have you be a part of what is going on. You can connect with us by filling out a connect card online at slatechurch.com. And hey, stay tuned for more content coming soon.